Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 31. This is going to be the last sermon from 1 Samuel, but we're going to continue on in the next book uh, after this. And I'm going to go ahead and read the whole chapter. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Melchishua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with them. So Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men died together that same day. And when the men of Israel, who were on either side, the other side of the valley, and those who were on the other side of the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, They forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. Father, we thank you for your word, your inspired, your holy word, your word which was intended for our sanctification. We ask, O God, that you would bless it as we seek to understand it and seek to apply it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the title of today's sermon may seem like it contradicts my theology. Uh, My theology says that of the increase of Christ's kingdom and of peace, there will be no end. So why am I titling this, When False Religion Triumphs? Uh, My theology says that from the time of Christ's resurrection, Christ has been building his church and the gates of hell have not prevailed against it. He has been invincibly advancing the cause of his kingdom and he is winning the war. But, and this is a very important distinction, Just because the overall worldwide war is being won by Christ does not mean we will not lose individual battles. Uh, I think it can be demonstrated that there has been a nonstop growth of the church numerically from the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, but at the very same time that that has been happening, there have been entire regions of Christendom that have been completely decimated. You know, the Muslims kind of almost wiped out Christianity out of uh, Africa and out of, out of uh, Turkey. And uh, humanism has almost wiped out the church from Europe and England and uh, from Australia and from Canada. 
Uh, I tell you, the church has taken a huge hit in those uh, countries, and I think we have our head in the sand if we say otherwise. Christ has never promised that the church would not lose individual countries. In fact, he's promised the exact opposite. Uh, He has said he will personally come and remove the church from a region if the church does not smarten up and repent. You can read that in Revelation 2 through 3. In fact, let me give you just one example. He told the church in Ephesus, "'Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent.'" Now, what's a lampstand? Earlier, he said, that's a symbol of the true church. He is saying, if you don't repent, I'm going to pluck up the true church from that region. And he did indeed indeed do that in regions of of Turkey. Uh, The church was removed. But the church can also lose individual battles, even if it is a vibrant, God-honoring church. God has never promised that the church would never have setbacks. But I am convinced that there would be a lot less setbacks if the church would be united in prayer and united in caring uh, for each other. And yet the church is anything but united, anything but prayerful, and anything but caring for the needs of the persecuted church worldwide. And today's sermon is a call to change that sad situation. So I've titled the sermon, When False Religion Triumphs, A Prayer and Action Report. And since it's a prayer and action report, it's going to be a little bit different than some of my sermons and the way in which, it's, uh, uh, way in which I, I preach it. But if you take a look at your map that I've made for you on your outlines, you'll see this was an absolute disaster for Israel. Israel was resoundingly defeated. If you take a look at the solid line that goes north up toward Gilboa, that was the initial uh, uh, foray of all of these Philistine armies uh, against Saul. And then you look at the dotted lines that are curling around and going south. Uh, those are the areas that the Philistines inhabited when Israel fled and, and they left uh, their cities. That's a good chunk of Israel. In fact, Israel had effectively been cut in half. Now take a look at the bottom. There's kind of a swipe that goes in a circle at the bottom. That's the Amalekite raids that came up through Philistia and through southern, uh, southern uh, Judah. They were opportunists who were taking advantage of the fact that all of the Israelite and all of the uh, Philistine armies had gone north. And so that's virtually two-thirds of Israel that has been decimated. Israel was hurting, and the Philistines had indeed triumphed in this battle. Now, what was David doing in the meantime? We've already seen that two days after Saul's resounding defeat at the hands of the Philistines, David was sitting in the ashes of Ziklag, mourning the loss of his own families to the Amalekites. But David began to do for Israel what I would encourage you to do for the church of Jesus Christ as well. Even while mourning, even while mourning his own losses, he began praying a prayer of faith in Psalm 69, verse 35, that God would save Israel and would rebuild the cities of Judah that had been so devastated, and that God would once again cause these refugees to be able to possess their possessions that they had been kicked out of by, by, by the Philistines. That's what he's praying there. 
So he is trusting God for the persecuted church. He is praying for the persecuted church. He is praying down God's curses upon the enemies of the persecuted church, especially verses 22 through 28 of uh, Psalm 69, which we've done a couple of forays into that psalm, and we'll kind of finish off the sermon today looking at that. And um, he was taking action on behalf of the persecuted church in chapter 30, And then two days later, he began ministering financial aid to those who had been devastated by the persecution of the Amalekites in uh, southern uh, Judah. And that's also in in chapter uh, 30. So David's response was prayer and action. And that's the purpose for my uh, sermon this morning. This is a call to prayer and action on behalf of the persecuted church, and even perhaps to do like David did and, and send financial aid Uh, We can't do everything, but we can certainly do something. Now, we've already dealt with verses 1 and 6 last week, so I'm not going to say much other than the obvious. Verse 1 begins by saying, Now the Philistines fought against Israel. And the writer makes it clear in verses 9 through 10 that this was at least in part a religiously motivated Hostility. The Philistines were proclaiming the victory in the temples of their idols. They put the armor of Saul into the temple of Ashtoreth. They took the head of Saul, according to First Corinthians, Chronicles 10, verse 10, put it into the temple of Dagon. They were, in effect, saying, this is a victory of our religion over the religion of Israel. Now, certainly, this could be viewed in terms of politics and economics and Philistine need for more land and other sociological factors, but I think it was in part motivated by the hatred that the demons of Ashtoreth and Dagon had against Yahweh. I think we will misinterpret the wars that go on around the world if we only interpret them in terms of oil and megalomaniacs and politics. I mean, it is demons who are driving those megalomaniacs uh, into war. First John tells us that the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. In other words, Satan can do anything that he wants uh, with these people, and you can see that all through the Old and the New Testaments. When the Pharisees and the Sadducees were opposed to Jesus, even after he's done these amazing miracles, things that show, you know, he must be divine, they're still opposed to him. It seems on one level to be totally irrational. It doesn't make any sense. But on another level, it makes sense when you realize there were demons who were driving these people uh, to, to, to hate Jesus. And in the same way, the opposition to Christianity around the world doesn't make sense on one level. Why can't they just leave us alone? I mean, Christians, for the most part, are peace-loving Uh, very kind and gentle and and, and loving their enemies kinds of people. Why can't they just leave uh, those Christians alone? Why the millions of martyrs and the tortures and the brutality against Christians? Well, I believe it's in part demonically motivated. The more successful that the church is, the more Satan is going to persecute the church. That's what Revelation 12 says. It says that that, that the devil, the dragon, was furious... Why? Because he knows that he is losing the battle. That's why he is furious and persecuting the church. And so the reason we have had more persecution against Christians in the last, oh, 50 years than we have in the entire history of mankind 
is because the church has been growing faster in the last 50 years than it ever has before in the history of mankind. And Satan doesn't like that. He's lashing out the same demons that were behind Ashtoreth and Dagon back then, hated and persecuted Christians in the New Testament. For example, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that Herod ordered the killing of all of the babies under two years of age in Bethlehem. Now, if that's as far as you read, you might think, well, this guy is just a lunatic, or you might think it was politically motivated. But Revelation chapter 12 takes us behind the scenes into the realms of the invisible, and he says, no, it was the dragon, it was Satan who was motivating Herod to kill all of those, those babies. And then you look in Revelation chapter 2, and you see that, yes, there was local persecutions and people being thrown into local prisons, but Revelation 2 goes behind the scenes and tells us the spiritual cause for that. It says the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. And this is one of the reasons why prayer is so effective. You can't be in these other countries where these people are being persecuted, but you can certainly pray for them. This is a spiritual battle that we are talking about. And I believe that the church of the West could bind the hand of Satan and give aid to the uh, elect angels who are fighting against Satan's troops if we would be united in prayer. And if we want to see some of the amazing successes against the persecutors that David and his men see in the upcoming chapters that we're going to be looking at, then we need to pray the same prayers that David and his men were praying, and especially the imprecatory prayers. We've already looked at uh, two or three of them, but Psalm 69 is a no-holds-barred uh, kind of a prayer against Satan and those who align themselves with Satan. It's calling down God's judgments upon those who kill and destroy Christians in other countries. But you can bet your bottom dollar that wherever Christ's kingdom has established a beachhead, there will be opposition. Guaranteed. Second Timothy 3.12 guarantees all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So first of all, there's opposition. Point two is that Christians face death. Take a look at verse 6. So Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men died together that same day. And Josephus tells us it was a huge number that died. So that was the prayer report for David. The prayer report for us is that anywhere in the last couple of decades, anywhere from 163,000 to 165,000 Christians are murdered for their faith every single year. It ranges right around there, 163 to 165,000. And most of those martyrdoms about communists, Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus, and many times they are screaming their religious slogans as they maim and torture and kill uh, and brutalize uh, Christians in these other, uh, these other countries. Now, in terms of the number of Christians killed, I understand that the worst nations in descending order are North Korea, Iran, Afghanistan, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, Maldives, Yemen, Iraq, Uzbekistan, Laos, Pakistan, and Sudan. Nigeria didn't even get into the list of top nations that are killing uh, Christians. And yet last year, uh, the Muslim group Boko Haram killed 510 Christians in one week and destroyed 350 churches 
using guns, gasoline bombs, even machetes. And then over time, I think that number grew to over a thousand people. They weren't even in the list of the top ten of persecutors. We need to be aware that Christians face death for their faith all over the world. Now, I want to read you just a few highlights. Uh, These are headlines from the last two months that I have uh, quickly pulled together. June 3, suicide bomber killed 15 Christians at prayer. May 29, 35 Christians officially reported murdered in Nigeria's Plateau State and the number rising. May 24, five Christians killed in Pakistan. May 17, Christians attacked at Bayero University in Kano. 17 students and two professors dead, 22 injured. May 14, more Christians killed in Orissa. March 22, in Kadugle, the capital of South Kordofan, at least four church buildings have been razed and more than 20 Christians killed. Church torched. Christians threatened in India's Kashmir state. Anti-Christian incidents in Indonesia are on track to surpass last year's increase, according to the Jakarta Communication Forum. Two pastors burned to death in Mombasa, Kenya. Egypt, Egyptian judge frees attackers who knifed a Christian. And the list could go on and on. 165,000 Christians martyred last year. Why do we need to be involved? Because it is a life and death issue. It is a life and death issue. Point three, Christians become refugees. Verse seven says, and when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, so that would be going west toward the sea, And those who were on the other side of the Jordan, that would be going east, saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead. They forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. Now, the area that the Israelites fled from is the area covered by the top three arrows that you see on the map that I drew for you there. It was a mass displacement of people who probably did not have the time to take very much stuff with them. They took pretty much as much as they were quickly able to carry. And this is happening all over the world to Christians as well. You've probably seen some of the footage of Christians being massacred in Orissa State, uh, India, uh, with all of the houses of the Christians being burned down, Christians fleeing for their lives, foraging for insects or anything else that can keep their bodies together. Initially, it was about 100,000 Christians that fled to the woods. About a year later, they were estimating around 50,000 that were still hiding out uh, in, in, in the woods. They had to flee so quickly, they couldn't bring anything with them. Refugees. In country after country, there are Christian refugees who have escaped by the skin of their teeth. And let me give you just a a tiny picture. We don't know the exact figure, but a tiny picture of how many refugees have fled from Iraq by comparing two numbers. In 2003, there were 1.2 million Christians in Iraq. Today, there are estimates ranging from 350,000 to... 500,000 Christians. Now, if you subtract those two numbers, you get an idea of how many Christians have been killed or who have fled uh, from the country. It's anywhere from 700,000 to 850,000 Christians who have either died or are refugees from Iraq. What about other countries? Even liberal CBS has reported that 100,000 Christians have left Egypt as a result of the intense persecution that the Christians are facing after uh, Mubarak's overthrow. 
100,000 who have had to flee. There are tens of thousands of Christian refugees fleeing from Mali since this last March 22, just this spring. One Mali contact said, Horrible crimes have been made against the population. Massacres, rape of women, obligation to wear the veil, chasing Christians. All the churches were destroyed in Gao and Timbuktu. You wondered where Timbuktu came from, right? Uh, it's from here. All the believers had to flee towards the south, leaving their homes and giving up all their goods. And there are similar statistics of Christian refugees who have had to flee from Indonesia, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Burma, and other countries. Now here is an additional aspect to be known about this tragedy. Who dominates the United Nations Refugee Agency, the UNHCR? Muslims. And when Christian refugees ask asylum from Muslim persecution, guess who gets to accept or deny their request for asylum? It is Muslims. It's not even Americans who make such decisions for who comes to America. We've completely ceded all of that authority to the U United Nations. Muslim United Nations employees are keeping Christians from being able to flee from Iraq resulting in the decimation of the Christian Iraqi community. In India, 200,000 refugees in Punjab state and more than that number in Sindh state have been denied access to aid by Muslims. And at the same time that these Christians are being denied refugee status, entire Muslim communities are moving into the United States on refugee status even though they're not even being persecuted. I mean, it's just an absolute tragedy, and we need to contact our government officials and say, this has got to stop. This is ridiculous. This is not right. Just by way of comparison, what America is allowing in terms of immigration would be like making up a team of Amalekites, Philistines, Edomites, and Ammonites determining which Jews would get asylum and which Jews would not. Okay, it's just bizarre. It's bizarre. It's a sad situation, and we need to be in prayer. Because asylum cannot be found, there are over 5 million internally displaced people in various countries who were hiding out from their persecutors, and there are millions more in refugee camps. This is a call to care and to share with such Christians. Now, we can't do everything, but we can at least do something. Point four deals with the arrogance of the Philistines on four levels. First of all, there was control of the Israelite properties. Verse 7 ends by saying, And the Philistines came and dwelt in them. Now, they pretty much stole Israelite farms and homes and personal property, and there wasn't a thing that the Israelites could do about it. Total control of this property by the new authorities, the new Philistine authorities. And, of course, this has happened over and over again. Mugabe is not the only tyrant who has stolen farms from Christians and given them to his men. Uh, you can see land being confiscated from Christians in Orissa State, India. Burmese routinely have their land stolen from them when they become Christians. And it's done all in the name of their religion. Verse 8 continues. So it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. Now they'd already confiscated everything that was in the homes, uh, they're also stripping the dead of anything that is valuable. 
And you can see this happening as well in country after country. I'll just give you one little story. Uh, one of the Indians, uh, pastors that uh, we work with in India was grabbed by some Hindu thugs and they had these heavy metal rods that they were just beating him with, breaking I don't know how many bones. In fact, uh, when he got taken to the hospital, they were totally surprised he was still breathing, that he uh, survived. But he was so thoroughly beaten, they just left him there for dead. And then they took all of the money out of his uh, pockets, put a note in place of it saying, all Christians will receive similar treatment. Okay, and you can see this kind of thing happening all over the place. Now, it's not just um, thugs who steal from Christians, and there are thousands of stories like that, that you could, you could have a theft of children, money, furniture, and other properties. It's not just thugs, though. Governments all over the world confiscate money and property as well. There are numerous reports of Chinese police confiscating the personal property of Christians and never returning it. For example, on March 11 of this year, excuse me, last year, Pastor Xi Enhao was arrested by the municipal PSB while he was preaching. He was beaten. He was detained. The officers then went to his house and they confiscated everything of value, including a church vehicle, uh, musical instruments, and uh, 140,000 yuan of church offerings. Uh, that's equivalent to a little over 22,000 U.S. Just confiscated it. The financial suffering of Christians worldwide is an issue I think we need to offer up before the Lord, and we need to ask for justice from His throne, that God would give restitution fourfold into the lives of these Christians. We have the evidence. We can take the evidence before the courtroom of heaven. Then there is the dishonoring of the bodies. Verse 9 says, They cut off his head and stripped off his armor. Verse 10 ends by saying, They fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. I mean, they just let their bodies rot on these walls. As already mentioned, 1 Chronicles 10, verse 10 says, They fastened the head in the temple of Dagon. Now this again shows that their interest is not simply in winning a war. Their hatred continues after the war has been finished. It continues after people are dead. <clears throat> it's a demonic hatred. For over 400 years of Roman Catholic persecutions of, of Protestants, I think, give ample testimony to the demonic practice of abusing and dishonoring the human body both before and after the death of Christians. And actually, it's occurred since then. Even in Mexico, you, you see this. There are reports of Roman Catholic persecution of Protestants, even dismemberment of bodies. Now, when you see that kind of stuff, just think, demons. There are demons present who are motivating these kinds of persecution. And so contrary to Protestant respect for the image of God and even the worst of men. I mean, just take uh, one war... Now, you could look at First and Second World Wars, but look at the war between the states. Even though there was a lot of terrible things that went on, at least they respected the bodies of their opponents. But in demonically controlled countries, such respect is obliterated, and demons motivate people to all kinds of grotesque acts that I won't even get into this morning. And perhaps the saddest aspect of this persecution is that the enemy thought that those successful persecutions showed the impotence of our God. And so it's actually a dishonor to the name of Christ. 
It's a dishonor uh, to God's glory. Let's read verses 9 through 10. And they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, sent word throughout the, the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. In other words, they wanted it pro- proclaimed in every Philistine temple uh, the deeds that they had done. So it was a religious issue. Verse 10, Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bashan. Now this was their testimony to the fact that their gods are more powerful than Yahweh. Why would God allow that? Isn't this a terrible testimony to God's name? Well, there's a sense in which it is, but from God's perspective, he is more interested in a pure church than he is in a happy church. And if persecution will wake the church up and turn them around, he is willing for them to go through it. He will allow it. But it is interesting how frequently Hindus and Muslims announce the victory of their gods over our gods, our, our God, excuse me, when they persecute us. And this should stir us up to pray for the glory of God's honor, for the glory of Christ's name, and say, Lord, stand up for your own glory. Now, it's in the context of such hideous persecution that something rather remarkable happens. There were people, just like David, who were stirred to trust God even more and to do all in their power to honor God in both life and death. And such were the men of Jabesh Gilead. In uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1, David paid a great tribute to these men. He said, these guys are heroes. These guys are men of God. And, and yet right even in this passage, I think we have an, an, an instance of the fact that they're not only grateful to Saul, they're grateful to God for what God had done for them. And that's true, they picked the wrong side in this uh, clash between Ishbosheth and, and David. But I think you can explain that even geographically. It, it, it's an understandable uh, switch. But they're clearly men of God who trusted God in their acts of valor. And there's four acts of valor that I want to highlight here. The first act of valor was simply the decision to not run, to stay put when they hear the news. Take a look at verse uh, 11. Now, when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, their decision to stay put was an act of valor because they were shortly to become an island, and actually they already were when they left, an island in a sea of Philistines. They're completely surrounded uh, by Philistines. Verse 7 says that most of the other Jews in the surrounding districts fled, and you can't blame them. Uh, For many of them, it was a pretty logical decision because a lot of those cities weren't walled cities, and uh, they would be in deep trouble. They, They didn't have a choice, but God put something into the spirits of these men of Jabesh that made them determined to be part of a resistance. And I have personally known Christians in Iran who have refused to flee. Two of my friends have spent... And they have a number of their own friends who have spent a number of months in one of the worst of the Iranian uh, prisons. And yet even in prison and outside of prison, there have been quite a few Muslims who have come to a saving knowledge of Christ because they look at this boldness of these people who don't want to leave and they say, how can you have such lack of fear? How can you have such boldness? Can I have the peace? Can I have the joy that you are having? It's precisely because of the attitudes that these men of Jabesh had 
present in the lives of many people in Iran that hundreds of thousands of Muslims are becoming Christians in Iran. I'm amazed at their boldness. I'm amazed at the boldness of some of the people who preach so boldly in China despite the fact they've been tortured, they've been beaten, and they know they could get arrested and and beaten uh, once again. I've been involved in the training of hundreds of pastors in India who daily face death threats, and most of these pastors have seen other people actually killed uh, for their faith, and so they know these are not idle death threats. And yet, these men and these women have a boldness that makes them want to stay put and to have a witness for Jesus Christ in that area. And it really does take the, the spirit of the men of Jabesh to keep the flame of Christianity alive in those countries. If everybody fled, like some of the earlier people did, uh, the, the, the flame of witness would be completely extinguished, especially in some of those Muslim countries. One of the myths that you hear today is that the church always grows through persecution. That is absolutely false, absolutely not true. Uh, let me give you some examples. Let me say that it only grows when a good percentage of the Christians have the spirit, the same spirit as the men of Jabesh. The Christian population in Turkey has dropped from 32% to 0.2% in the last 100 years. That's not a growth because of persecution. That's an obliteration of the church of Jesus Christ there. Iraq has dropped from 35% to 5%. Iran has dropped from 15% to 2% since the Ayatollah took over. Now, praise the Lord, I've just mentioned that things are completely turning around uh, in Iran because it is becoming a country that is filled with men, women, and children who have the same spirit that these men of Jabesh uh, Gilead had. They are willing to die to spread the gospel, and as a result, in just the last five years or so, the church has just been growing like wildfire. Uh, Open Doors says that it's an explosive growth. They can't even keep up with how fast the church is growing uh, in Iran despite persecution. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray that the Spirit of God would come upon Christians and make them valiant for Christ, daring to do the impossible just like Jabesh dared to do the impossible but at least that there would be solid Christians who would stay put in these countries and uh, seek to take their countries for King Jesus against false religion. Second act of valor of these men was to deliberately penetrate deeper into Philistine territory in order to bring back the, the bodies of Saul and his sons. Take a look at verse 12. All the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. Now the Philistines already controlled the area around Jabesh Gilead, so it was dangerous for them to venture out. But they were going across the Jordan up to Bethshan. That was, this was an area completely controlled by the Philistines. They were penetrating deep into Philistine territory to engage in their mission. And we can pray for the valiant men and women around the world who not only stay put, they are deeply penetrating into enemy territory in order to preach the gospel and to reclaim the dead souls of men and women and children. Uh, many know that they may not come back to their families alive that night when they go out and preach. But God has given these uh, sons of valor hearts that are brave and I believe totally sold out to King Jesus. 
uh, one of the trips that Jonathan and I uh, took to India in 2008 involved a long drive deep into Maoist uh, guerrilla controlled territory in Orissa State. And this was doubly dangerous because this was the area that had, I mentioned, 100,000 people fleeing out into the forest. We were driving through these forests, ministering to people there. But it was also an area where these Maoist guerrillas had attacked and killed so many people. And I have to admit, we were ignorant that we were going into Maoist-controlled territory. We just went wherever they told us to go, so I can't claim to be brave particularly, but these people were. They knew exactly what they were going into. And um, they took us to new villages of Hindus, and we'd all start singing in the public square, and then when a group gathered around wondering what in the world was going on, we would take turns preaching our hearts out, calling upon them to cast away their idols and to embrace Jesus and escape from the, the fires of hell. And later on, there is it's wonderful. It's just wonderful to see how many people coming to Christ uh, in those places. But later on, one of the team members confronted the pastor and said, you know, we're here on visas. It's illegal to go in here. Why in the world would you take us into this Maoist guerrilla-controlled territory? And it was, I, I still to this day, can remember the look on his face. He had such a look of puzzlement on his face, like that was the stupid, stupidest question he had ever heard. And he said, I don't remember the exact words, but he said something to this effect, but Christians are ready to die every day. He was puzzled. He couldn't understand why anybody would ask that question. He says, of course we're going to penetrate into these new areas where the gospel is needed. That's what Christ has called us to do. That's what you're here for, isn't it? And in the ensuing conversation, it became quite clear they would have gone in even if it was guaranteed that they would die that day by going into that place. Here were men, and actually there were some women amongst them, who had the spirit of Jabesh, Gilead. And we need to pray that God would multiply the seed sown by such valiant men. I think it'd be awesome if we can share more and more financially in the ministries of people like that. Now, part of the reason some pastors have given to me as to why they're willing to risk death daily as they preach the gospel is that Christ has given his all for them. And of course, they want to give their all for him. Uh, there was certainly gratitude that these men of Jabesh-Gilead had for the heroic protection that Saul provided for them many, many years before. Verses 12 through 13 make it very clear they were honoring Saul. Uh, they were doing this out of gratitude for Saul, gratitude for Saul's valiant sons. And I want uh, you to uh, take a look with me. Um, let's see here. Uh, chapter 31, beginning at verse 11. Now, when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And I believe, by the way, that they burned the bodies to get rid of the stench of the rotting flesh, not to cremate them. Uh, they buried the bones, okay? They believed in burial, but it was probably messy by this time. Verse 13, Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. So they risked their lives to honor the bodies of Saul and his sons. Now, why would they do that? Well, the town of Jabesh was grateful to Saul for his heroic service to them. And it's a really cool story. And I want you to turn with me back to 1 Samuel 11. 
We did not preach on this one because we're mainly looking at the life of, of David. But take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 11, and I want to begin reading at uh, verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel, and then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field, and Saul said, What troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. When he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will come out to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch, and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day. And it happened that those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Now, if you were a citizen of the town of Jabesh, would you not be grateful? <laughs> Saul has rescued you from having your right eye gouged out and being put into slavery for the Ammonites. And they were so grateful. And there are Christians all around the world who are so grateful to Jesus for having spared them from a far greater bondage and having spared them from a far greater pain, uh, eternity in hellfire, that it's a no-brainer for them to risk their all for Christ. They, 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 they just automatically want to be like the men of Jabesh. Their gratitude drives them to take risks for King Jesus. Their hearts are bound to King Jesus. And honestly, the, the Christians in those, those countries, I think, stand as a rebuke to us Westerners who don't even want the risk of being thought weird when we witness to other people. We don't have the spirit of Jabesh in America, and we need it. We desperately need it, or we're going to be in the same trouble. Uh, when we are filled with the Spirit of God, what does He do? Well, Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 says that the Spirit gives us boldness and zeal for witnessing, gives to us a generosity to share our wealth with those who are in need. That's what the Spirit of God does when He comes upon us. And it should be our prayer, Lord God Almighty, may Your Spirit come upon us like 
your spirit came upon the early Saul. And may your spirit come upon us like upon those men of Jabesh. And may your spirit come upon us like it came upon the church in Acts 2 and Acts chapter 4. We need the Spirit of God. See, the citizens of Jabesh learned not to cave into fear. It was much more than freedom that they were valuing. They learned not to cave into fear, not to give up hope in God, and to be valiant for the cause of Christ. And that this wasn't a humanistic act of bravery can be seen not just from David's tribute to them in chapter 1 of the next book, but from the last phrase of verse 13, which says that they fasted seven days. So the last act of valor came from their recognition of where their true help uh, was uh, from. It did not come from their own right hand, or they would not have humbled themselves before God. Okay, It did not come from some human deliverer like it had before. Before, they were fearful. They were waiting for a soul to deliver them. They had no one. Their help came from the Lord God alone. And to me, this is such a cool passage. Uh, At this point, they are saying, God is our only hope and stay. And I think that's why they fasted for 13 days. They're humbling themselves before the Lord and saying, Lord, if Israel is to have any hope, if it's to have any help, it's through you alone. And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, humbling yourself is probably the biggest battle that you will ever face. Biggest battle you will ever face. When Jesus called his disciples to deny themselves, to pick up their cross, to follow after him, uh, he was calling them to do something that only God's grace can accomplish. And when God, by his spirit, enables you to humble yourself completely before him, you're going to be able to do any act of valor that God calls you to do. That's the first step, really. The last step here is the first step that needs to happen. Uh, in our lives, if we're to be valiant like Jabesh. Now, I do want you to turn with me to Psalm 69. I'm going to end by giving you eight action steps that you can uh, take in the face of worldwide persecution. This was the psalm that David wrote two days after this battle, and it shows what drove him. And let me remind you, too, what we said in an earlier sermon, that the New Testament a number of times quotes this and says this is the, these are the words of Jesus. So whatever interpretive problems that that makes for us, we've got to submit to apostolic authority and say these are the words of Jesus. And if we agree with these words and we pray them, we're coming into agreement with Jesus. Okay, um, I'm not going to read through the whole psalm, but if you just glance at it, verses 1 through 4 of this psalm show me that we must be aware uh, of the intense hatred for Jesus that is represented in the persecution that David faced. It's true, David was being persecuted, but according to apostolic interpretation, it was ultimately Jesus who was being persecuted. Isn't that what Jesus told Saul? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He thought he was only persecuting humans. So persecution of the church is persecution of Jesus. And so, to me... I, the, 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 the thing that I see on this is we must look at persecution Christocentrically. Can't just look at it in terms of ethnicity and sociology and economics and national issues. The worldwide persecution of Christians is a demonic hatred of Jesus. And so it's Jesus who says in verse 4, they have hated me without a cause. They have hated me without a cause. Those Philistines hated everything that Jesus stood for 
because they were moved by the demons who were behind Ashtoreth and Dagon. When God's people are being persecuted, Christ is being persecuted. When we help the persecuted church, we're helping Jesus. We're blessing Jesus. Matthew 25, he makes that very crystal clear. He said, you visited me in prison. You fed me, you clothed me. And they said, when did we do that? And he said, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. So the first point is we must approach this Christocentrically. The second point is that we cannot ignore that persecution without ignoring Jesus. And that's what this psalm really drives home to me. If you care about Jesus, you must care about the persecuted church. If you don't care about the persecuted church, Jesus is going to say, you don't care about me. I think we've got to at least say that. The third thing is that Jesus, the head of the bride, confesses the sins of the body, his body, the bride. So he's the head, we're the body. He's not committed any sins, but his body has, right? And so this is the interpretation that I think can reconcile this uh, with the New Testament. So when Jesus confesses the sins of the body in verses 5 through 12, he's doing so simply because of his union with the body. But it's clear from John 2, 17 which quotes this section of the confession of sins. It quotes this section that these are the words of Jesus. And it's uh, clear again in Romans 15.3. He does the same thing. And the way it's worded in Romans 15.3 is interesting. It says, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, during our corporate confession of sins, some of you might say, well, I didn't commit those sins. Why would I confess them? The point is, you are connected to the body of Christ, and the body of Christ as a whole needs to confess these sins. If Jesus could do it, certainly you could do it, okay? So you got to think less individualistically, like Westerners, and you got to think more Easternly. You know, Eastern thinking recognizes we are communally connected, and uh, there's, there's, there's this covenantal relationship. And so the persecuted church needs you. Needs you to confess sins corporately. The fourth thing we can do is ask for deliverance of the bride out of her persecutions as verses 13 through 18 do. Don't do like Chinese Christians who ask for persecution. That's masochism. I don't see any biblical basis for asking for persecution. Ask to be saved from persecution. This is intercession. We must be an intercessory people, but don't invite persecution. Ask for the bride to be delivered. The fifth thing we can do is to offer up the grief of the persecuted church as if suffering with her. If there's one thing you get from Psalm 69, it's that the one who prays this feels the suffering. I think you can get that from verses 19 through 20, and there are several other verses in here as well. Now, if there's one thing that's clear from the conversion of Saul when Christ appears to him, it's that Jesus feels the persecution, okay? He feels it deeply. How do we do that? Well, by learning to see yourself as part of the body of Christ. Hebrews 13, verse 3 says, Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who were mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body of Christ. 
Does that make sense? We've got to see ourselves as corporately connected with persecuted people in India and Burma and China and in other places like that. Now, it's, again, tough for us American individualists, but we've got to do it. Let me read that verse again. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body of Christ. The sixth thing that we can do is to start praying the curses of God against the persecutors of the church like David did in verses 22 through 28. And again, the New Testament says these are his words. Now, if you read James Adams' book, The War Psalms of the Prince of Peace, you'll realize the only time that Christ prays these words is when the church is willing to take these psalms upon their lips. In other words, he prays it from within the congregation. So to me, it's no wonder that the persecutors around the world have no blowback when the church is not asking for them to have any blowback. The rare times where the church has actually taken these psalms seriously, God has brought judgments against the persecutors. The church has got to return to this. We've got to return to the singing and the praying of the imprecatory psalms. Okay, the seventh thing we can do is to constantly affirm God's future victory and vindication in the name and cause of Christ. It's, it's an expression of faith. We cannot have defeatism on our lips. We've got to have faith on our lips. And you see that in verses 29 through 36. It's an awesome statement of faith that the cities that were destroyed about two days earlier would be rebuilt, would be re-inhabited by the saints, and that the righteous would be given dominion. So we must not allow persecution to rob us of our faith. So many people, when they're analyzing persecution, they just think, yeah, things are getting worse and worse, and the church is going to be exterminated eventually, and that's what, what we've got to do. we just got to lie down and get exterminated. No, it's got to be words of faith upon our lips. Uh, we need to realize that there is so much persecution because Christ is indeed winning the war. Now, before I tell you the last thing we can do, I want us to just read together... Uh, Psalm 69, verses 22 through 36, and let's just come into agreement with God on behalf of the persecuted church. Uh, Psalm 69, uh, beginning at verse 22 and reading to, to the end of the chapter together. Let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents, for they persecute the ones you have struck, and talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and let them not come into your righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous." But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull which has horns and hooves. The humble shall see this and be glad. And you who seek God, your hearts shall live. For the Lord hears the poor and does not despise his prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. 
Also the descendants of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. And may the Lord indeed answer that prayer from this congregation. He can answer it in one of two ways. According to the scripture, Christ can bear the curse and they will be saved or they will bear the curse and be taken out. But let's one way or the other pray, God, turn them. Because if they're, if they're converted, they're destroyed as enemies, aren't they? They become friends. But either way, let's pray, continue to pray that they would be taken out. The last thing we can do is what David did in 1 Samuel 30. He sent messages and food to those throughout southern Judah who had just been so devastated. He did what he could do to strengthen the hands of those who had been persecuted. And I think if we will take those eight steps of David, I think you can approach the whole subject of persecution realistically without getting depressed. And so let's commit ourselves to being a help to the persecuted church. Father God, we thank you for this scripture that reminds us of the hatred that Satan has perpetually had for you and for your people. And Father, we align ourselves with you and we want to stand with uh, you and to embrace all those whom you embrace. And forgive us for those times where we have been completely forgetful of the persecuted church. May we obey the admonition of Hebrews 13 to remember them as if chained with them. Help us, Father, uh, to strategize as elders and deacons to figure out ways that we can bless uh, the persecuted church in other countries, whether financially and letter-writing campaigns or whatever it is that we uh, need to do. But, Father, we pray that your glory would be lifted up that is being so despised and is being trampled into the ground. And we pray that as you love your bride, that you would protect her, that you would be jealous on her behalf, that you would stand up as the great judge of the nations and cause these nations to be humbled and to come to a saving knowledge of you. But Father, whether through salvation or whether through destruction, we pray that you would cause the persecution to end and for a peace and truth and grace to triumph. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.